Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. If you like this podcast, help us by sharing the love. Leave a review of Art of the Cut on your favorite podcasting platform or get involved in the conversation. Ask questions, leave comments. We read them all. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with David Rosenblum, ACE. David Rosenblum was nominated for an Oscar and Ace Eddie for the feature film The Insider. He was nominated for an Emmy and Ace Eddie for the TV pilot for I'll Fly Away and another Ace Eddie nomination for an episode of Hill Street Blues. He also won an Ace Eddie for the TV special Do You Remember Love? His filmography also includes the feature films Black Mass, Friday Night Lights, Pay It Forward, and Rudy. Today we're discussing his editing on the feature film The Way Back. Just tonally about the movie, um, kind of the slow burn start of it. Did you guys have discussions about tone and how you wanted the movie to feel before you started editing? There were a lot of discussions about visual tone with Edu, how we were going to shoot with a, a director of photography, how we were going to shoot it, what format. Originally, it was a, intended to be a Super 16. So we did some camera tests on Super 16. And so if you, you can imagine what that would look like, and that alone suggested a certain tone to the movie. We ended up shooting digitally. We had a live grain. So it's a, a new way of, I'm sure you've heard of this now, it's a new way of adding grain and seeing it immediately while shooting and then and it being embedded in the daily. So it was in everything we did. Uh, it gets uh, then stripped out when we, when we online and then reapplied for the answer print uh, for the final DI. As far as the slow burn of it, the, the emotional tone of it, it was, we found a lot of it in the, in the cut. We simplified the opening. We, we lost a number of scenes setting up Jack with uh, the relationships with the people in the bar, but we decided to just go on a um, solely a... Um, very introspective Jack at the beginning, virtually talking to nobody uh, until he gets over to his sister's house for the Thanksgiving and, and the guy in the liquor store. But it was, it was pretty evident from the beginning what the movie was going to be like. It was going to be this 70s style uh, character study um, mm -hmm. with, you know, with the basketball to kind of keep it exciting and more contemporary. I did realize after you've seen... Uh doc or whoever the black guy is that takes him home a couple of times you don't really know who he is you just see him taking him home and it didn't bother me rather than establish the bar as jack's world which is kind of how it was written um that this is where he goes that this is the only social interaction that he actually has we just decided to say that he has virtually no social interaction he goes there he knows people you know he 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 sort of nods his head uh, and then these people kind of, you know, are just around him. And then later in the movie, you find out that old guy that takes him home knew his father. And, and it's just dropped very neatly, very nicely. Doesn't need to be, you know, you're not asking that question along the way. 
So when the information comes to you later in the, in the movie, it's just kind of, oh, that's interesting, as opposed to, well, I wonder who that guy is. But again, there was a whole big scene with him at the beginning to set him up, and we found that that just wasn't necessary in the telling of, of the story we wanted to tell. I think you find out the story you want to tell as you go through the editing process, particularly in a, in a movie that isn't, you know, narratively driven. I mean, there's no big plot to this. Is this a new director for you? It looks like it. How did you guys establish a rapport? How did you establish trust? We had a big meeting. Uh, just the interview was kind of a lot of fun. We just sat down, we talked for a couple of hours, and, but, you know, we have similar tastes. We have similar, uh, we're, we're more or less the same age group. He's a bit younger than I am, but not a lot younger. Um, we love movies. We have, um, and we, we like to, and we like to talk. Uh, he's a very open guy, and he's a very smart man, and he knew his project, and he knew enough about his project to know what he, what he really liked and what he was unsure about, so he was always open to stuff. It was shot all in L.A., so he didn't view any cuts during the course of making the movie, but we talked every day or every other day. I'd go to the set every once in a while and just kind of hang out and begin to establish, because he's somebody that I hadn't worked with before, uh, I didn't want him coming into the editing room you know, six or seven weeks on, sit down, watch the movie, and try and figure out, A, what my movie is, and B, who's this guy I have to work with for the next number of months. The way I like to approach the editing process is to set it up along the way during the shoot. Not opposed to showing cuts during the filming, if the director wants to, but I'm finding that they want to less and less, and I think it's better that, uh, certainly if there's an issue, we gotta look at something, once in a while, I'll get a five or a ten minute sequence together and just to sort of feel good about what we're doing. If there's a great sequence, so I, I mean, I, I think it's a great sequence. You know, it's fun to sit down and just watch it with him and show you, hey, look, this is what we're doing. This is great. Because nobody watches dailies anymore. He doesn't watch it. I, of course, watch dailies, but the crew doesn't watch dailies. So there's none of that kind of camaraderie around the actual images that we're capturing. Uh, once upon a time, you know, we'd sit and watch dailies at the end of the day. And I, by the way, I didn't do this too long ago. I, I, I did a movie a few years ago where we did this, and it was great. Most people don't know what they're missing because they weren't around back when we did it. But it's a real vital component. So now we look for ways to, um, uh, how can we replace that? What do we replace it with? Uh, we don't have a gathering and watch cut footage with a bunch of people, but I find that at least I can do that with the director once in a while. And then there are the directors that do want to work on weekends and want to come in and see, you know, what's going on. And, of course, we do that. But as far as establishing the rapport with Gavin, it was going to the set. It was talking about the script. It was talking about the scenes that he'd shot. It was really trying to think ahead about what we would be dealing with. And it was great. You know, he's very receptive, uh, very focused when he's shooting. So, you know, you got to find the times to talk. That's why being around the set is so important to me because appointment driven phone calls at the end of the day uh geez i gotta talk to the editor i wonder what he has to say you know it's like i'd rather go and you know have a beer and go to sleep or prep for tomorrow so if i'm around the set and there's five minutes or you know ten minutes and he's just he'll come over and we'll talk and it's kind of at his leisure and it just seems to be more productive and we don't even have to talk about the movie. We, you know, again, establishing the rapport. We'll talk about, you know, the football games over the weekend or coronavirus or uh, fortunately that wasn't going on at the time. 
Um, yeah. But, you know, so so by the time he came in and watched the movie, uh, I was still just as nervous as I would have been had I never met him. But uh, we got past it pretty quick, and we just sort of sat down and started working. And he's a real hardworking guy, so it made it very easy to sort of sit down in the chairs and just start working and spend a lot of time talking and... And is that how you collaborate? You when he came in and you were working together, did you spend a lot of time talking, or more show and tell, or a fair bit of both? Uh, mostly was um, you know just talking through the scenes. He did watch every single take. While he didn't do that during filming because he saw everything on the monitor, he does feel he's old school that way, and he feels it's his duty, it's his responsibility to watch everything. And of course. We print everything now, so um, we didn't just watch circle takes. We watched everything. At the beginning, so if we, we were attacking a scene, we'd sit and we'd just watch all the dailies from the scene. He would throw out comments or just look at them. It was more for him than for him watching it with me. This was the time. So I would say, you know, a good portion of the uh, beginning of the day was spent looking at the dailies of the scene. Of course, we'd already watched the movie. That was the first thing he did was watch the movie. And then we would watch this. We would sit down, we'd watch a reel or we'd watch a portion or whatever. Then once he felt he kind of had done his homework for the day or his prep work for the day, which is watching the dailies, then we'd sit and we'd just sort of talk about stuff. And it's a great process. It's a lot of fun, as you know. It's great to sort of sit and sort of throw ideas out there. And particularly with a movie like this, because there was a fair bit of montage. There was a quite a bit of restructuring. There was a lot of reapproaching the storytelling. We'd end the day always feeling like we had a productive day. We would end the week just feeling great and saying it was just a great week because regardless what the movie, if, if we did, what we did was successful for the week, we certainly worked hard and we exercised the film every week and it's a joy to do that. I'm sure you've experienced, of course, when you watch a, your own cut with somebody else, that that changes the way you see it or feel it. Did the same thing happen with dailies, that you'd already watched dailies all the way through once? Now you're sitting with someone else in the room with you. Did you see them differently? Hard to say. I, I, I don't think so. No, I think I retained a lot of how I felt when I when I saw it. I had my notes to refer to. No, I'd say it, was, it wasn't any different. Just curious. It's interesting that he watched all the dailies with you. I would have thought on pics or something. But with you is, it's a lot of time for you to watch it all is. this stuff again. It, it is. Um, listen, I, I think, it, was it different? No. Was it a good experience? Yes. I, I can't say I'd, I've done this before. I mean, sure, if we're, you know, if we're working on a scene with any other director, uh, there are times in which you go back. Obviously, you go back to the dailies. Sure. Um, but you don't just sit and go through everything without regard for the cut. So it wasn't like watch a portion of the cut. Oh, let me see that take. Let me see the extension of that. It, that that's what I'm talking about. We just sat and looked at the dailies. We, we got to a point where uh, at least we weren't looking at, you know, a lot of what would have been considered B-neg, uh, stuff that was unprinted and, you know, or should have been unprinted. And we would blast through certain things. But every bit of the basketball. And that was very good for me, too, because that's hard to retain. So it was helpful. Then again, we would just discuss it and then we'd start to work. And he's a writer, so he goes off and starts writing. He had his offices. We were, everything on this movie was perfectly set up. We were at the studio. We had, he had his office. I had our group of offices. So we weren't fighting the elements. We were able to, he was able to go off and just sort of sit down and write. We had our VFX guy write down the hall, music editor write down the hall. So there were places for Gavin to go if he wanted to. Uh, other times he would just sit 
behind me and I'd be working and it always amazes me how directors can sort of sit there and do something else while I'm doing what I'm doing because I think well if I'm doing this everybody else must be like just as focused <laughs> on what's going on but he's sitting there and he's banging on his he has a he has a habit of like really pounding the keys of his computer so I know that he's engaged there and <laughs> and so something would go by and I would do something that I think was like oh that was pretty interesting and I'd turn back and he wasn't even looking you know he had no idea and clearly he wasn't even listening so then I would get his focus back we'd look and we'd play so uh it was it really was a, a great great room that's awesome uh, I want to ask you about a couple of specifics. Uh, you talked a little bit about restructuring. One of the things that I noticed, uh, there's a game that went to like 54, 55. might have been the first game that they possibly uh, won, at least in the, in the version that I saw in the theaters. And there's a really interesting intercutting between discussing what they're about to do because he's he's laying out the play here's our final 12 seconds here's what i want you to do and he lays it out and as he's laying it out instead of being in the huddle you're actually seeing what is about to happen can you tell me about it was that designed or is that something you found in the edit uh it wasn't designed uh it was definitely something we found in the edit uh it was the game the first game that they win we spent a lot of time on all the games. We had music all along the way. Our composer was on very, very early. Rob probably wrote that cue more than any other cue. There are probably more versions of that cue. I, I, I'm going back some months since we finished this, but I'm almost certain that there were more versions of that cue uh, than any other cue. The start and stop spots were different. We never really settled on a cut of this game that we liked. And it was the last thing that I brought to Gavin. This was well in, uh, beyond the previews. We're into the mix. We're still, you know, tinkering. But it, this is way, way late in the process. And I just took a stab at it one day. It was just one night or one weekend. I felt like just doing something, you know, more creative than sitting on a dub stage. So I decided to go back and uh, nothing. It was a good dub. It was a good, you know, it was fun. I love the dub. But every once in a while you miss what you were doing, you know, two months ago uh, while you were cutting something. So I went back and I just sort of had, had an idea. I, I just thought, let's try this. We haven't done anything like this in the movie. Maybe it'll be cool. So I did it and I showed, you know, my assistant. And then um, I took it to Gavin. He has no problems making decisions. And he knows what he likes when he sees it, and he knows what he doesn't like. And he loved it straight away. And I was a little surprised because it was a, it was a bit outside the visual style of the the visual storytelling style. But it was it seemed to be really organic once we did it. And those those are the greatest discoveries. When you recut it, and I only ask this because you said you were already on the dub stage, and you already had score done. Obviously, did it change the length of the piece, or were you just dropping? No, 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 it, cha it changed it completely. I, and, and you know, Mark Mangini and Byron Wilson are sound guys. You know, they're never happy to hear that I'm in the editing room. <laughs> they, they, they understand it, and they know me well enough to know that every once in a while, you know, when we have to do something that is more kind of technical and not so much creative in terms of having to adjust a cut, I do my very, very best to make it just drop right in so they don't have to do anything. But, you know, it doesn't matter, Steve, honestly, it doesn't matter how to what lengths I go to make it easy for them, it's still hard for them. You know, it, it, it's still, they still have to go back and do the work. At which point I figured, well, if, it, if they're going to say it's hard anyway, then I'm just, I'm just going to 
go ahead and change the lengths and change it all up and and uh, not not worry about that. I mean, I don't really try and just drop something in, but if I can, if it's a minor thing, if it's a you know, I, I don't I don't go out of my way to make life difficult for them. Sure. Uh, but um, they might say otherwise. They they were fantastic. We had a great mix. They were on from very early on. They both had worked with Gavin before. Uh, so they had a real established rapport with them, and they're fantastic. And we had great mixers and uh, a great team all around. Rob uh, Simonson, the composer, he and I had worked together uh, a couple of times, but neither one of us knew that we were doing the movie until we all met up uh, just before production began. We had a production meeting, and Gavin wanted everybody there, editors, composers, uh, sound guys, everybody. And I saw Rob, and, and I didn't realize he was doing the movie. So that was great because he was... Uh, he was watching dailies. He would come over. We, he wasn't on the picks um, distribution list, but he would come over to the editing room while Gavin was shooting with Gavin's blessing and just look, watch dailies with me, then just throw us music. And it was a great way. I mean, this went on for months. He was on the movie for a very long time. Most of what he, I think he came up with themes early on that stuck no cues, no full-length cues that lasted, but thematic ideas. Uh, and just for him to be involved along the way, to see every single cut, it got to the point where he was coming over, once Gavin was in the room, he was coming over at least once a week. This is just during the director's cut. Watching what we'd done, seeing how we'd um, used his music. Music editor, Kurt Sobel, another fantastic component of the uh, of the team, was right with us down the hallway. So it was a hub of activity and 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 real successful uh, in that regard. The uh, the music is a bit unusual for a sports movie. <laughs> it sounds like you tempt a lot with his stuff. Did, were you temping with other things too? No, only with his stuff. Only with his stuff. I mean, at first, you know, I was doing the usual temp tracking. I have, you know, from the library, I'll bring stuff in just to kind of feel what it's like. But I, I don't think I ever showed Gavin a sequence with music other than Rob's. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's true. I mean, there might have been something really early on, but but no, I, I think it was all with Rob's stuff. It's not, um, you know, Gavin never really set out to make a sports movie, so clearly uh, he didn't want music that sounded like a sports movie. And we had, you, you know, Rob really, really worked hard and, uh, and tried a lot of ideas in some of the games, like in the big game, uh, at the uh, the second time they play Memorial, these games went on for a long time. So there was Rob and I spent a lot of time talking about compositionally how this would be structured and and how his how his structuring a um, a long piece like a six or seven minute piece would have its own beginning, middle, and an end uh, musically. And so we were throwing around a lot of ideas. And every once in a while, he would try something. He goes, "Look, I'm just going to show you something. It's it's a little more on the uh, traditional sports." thing every time you know it would be great because it was a it was really really well done nowadays the, te the demos that you get from composers are like the finished product in, in many regards i say that then once we did it with live orchestra it's like wow how did we ever listen to that other stuff but during the course of of you know cutting you're hearing these great demos so it was great for that. It was also great because, oh, wow, this is new. We've been listening to something for the last six weeks. Oh, this is really new. And so it's the shiny new object. And you think, wow, that's great. And then Gavin would listen to it. And he goes, yeah, it's really good. That's not what I want to do. Uh, because it, it fell back into that, quote, you know, sports movie idea. So Gavin was really consistent about that. And really, I think, 
however you feel about it, it was a um, it was it was a committed uh, vision on on his part. And I don't think anybody would say oh, I really missed the uh, you know the Hoosiers moment or the Rudy moment because I don't think that they were really looking for that kind of. He wasn't looking for it, so therefore I don't think it was. It felt like it was missing. Yeah, the music really hit the tone of the movie for me. It, uh, it was definitely not Rudy and Hoosiers and yeah, absolutely not. Um, there was uh, sound design during the birthday party with score. Do you remember? So there's the birthday party. Some sound design comes in and some score. Kind of hard to tell where score and sound design mix. Uh, can you talk to me about that and and you working on that in the offline or in the cut? Well, yeah, we definitely found it on the mix. That music you also changed quite a bit. That area of the movie was a very, uh, it was very tricky. Structurally, uh, scene-wise, we, we reordered stuff. The, when the information was um, given to the audience had changed drastically in there. Oh, interesting. Um, the cue changed a number of times. That was probably the, ch- the cue that changed the second most number of times. Just variations, not drastically, but we really wanted to hit the tone right. Uh, Performance-wise, Ben was amazing in this. I think everybody, the reviews have said, said so. I think he was terrific. Part of what was so good about what he did was the, the uh, calibration of his emotions, of his drunkenness in the scenes where he got drunk, and the calibrations of his breakdown in the graveyard scene. So we had a lot to play with. The sound design was the last thing, because of course we were on the mix. and. We were trying to get the wind right. We were trying to get this. We were trying to get inside Jack's head as he's walking forward. The information that we are giving the audience is being doled out in just small little crumbs, and I, that was uh, uh, something that we adjusted in the in the cut. Actually, before the cut, this is something that that Gavin and I did discuss during the shoot. It, it was a pretty pretty big change, uh, and so um, we were very keen to make this the most. To, to shift gears, this is really where we're finding out about what you know, what Jack's wound is, uh, and so everything becomes vital. Everything becomes uh, everything comes under a microscope when, at this at this you know shift in the movie. Uh, so the sound and the music were you know were no exception, and we just kind of you know we just sort of battled and battled and battled with the material until we came up with what we think was. The way to go. It was a mix of sound design and, and music. And by the way, Mark and um, Byron and Rob did spend some time together, uh, just talking about handing off of music. And well, a lot of it uh, to shift gears. A lot of it in the basketball stuff. We knew we wanted to um, incorporate the body percussion uh, into the music, and so we did a lot of that. And you know, the montage and keeping things rhythmic as much as we could, and using the the balls, you know, Mark uh, recorded tons of Foley for all of the ball stuff and gave that to Rob and Rob used that and as part of his musical stuff. So where sound design and music handed off to each other is, it was a much more blended, um, greater blend of those two things that I'd ever done before. Interesting. I'll be back in a moment with more of my discussion with David Rosenblum, ACE. Let's face it, we always need more storage for our media and projects, but sometimes having storage isn't enough, because the more you have, the harder it is to find your files. Studio Network Solutions understands that. 
That's why their EVO shared storage servers provide industry-leading performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing and also include an entire suite of features designed to help you organize and manage your media. Every system comes with built-in software so you can search, tag, and preview all your storage, backup tools so you always know your media and projects are protected, and integrations for Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, Final Cut Pro 10, all included for free with your EVO shared storage server. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off of a new EVO system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo. If you're tired of rummaging through a mountain of drives to find your files, it's time to give your storage an upgrade. So before you add another drive to the pile, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. And now back to my discussion with David Rosenblum, ACE. Um, you mentioned how the way that information is parceled out to the audience changed pretty dramatically, and I could sense that as a viewer, more as an editor, because you're aware of it maybe more than most other audience members. I loved that you don't really know things until later in the movie. Like, that's... I think that's fine for audiences. Can you tell me how that changed and why you decided those things are going to change when when things are revealed to the audience? Well, it was always a it was always a late kind of reveal of Jack's wound. It was always um late second act. The way in which it was written was the first scene in that sequence was was Jack and Angela going to the cemetery. So we found out kind of like a anvil hitting us on the head that they walk up and we see first of all we didn't even know he had kids because he told the father that he didn't have kids and we barely know what what the relationship is between jack and angela anyway we know that they were married but we don't know what why they split up except we assumed that it was because he drank a lot so they just showed up at the cemetery and oh there's a dead kid and you know it's pretty moving and then all the scenes after that were kind of addressing oh he had cancer and because then we meet the other cancer kids and with are singing happy birthday and all that kind of stuff. So it, it wasn't a big shift, but it was a, it was a um, tricky one. So we know he's going to go to this birthday party because they, that had been set up before and he picks up Angela and they go to the birthday party. So we just decided to go to the birthday party, at which point we see these kids and we're not, you know, we just figure that they're friends of Jack and Angela's. And then there's that um, moment where um, Miguel uh, says to his son, you remember, Mr. Cunningham, Michael's dad. And, and the, the talk that M Miguel and Jack are having is about sick kids. Uh, and so it's just kind of this slow, you, you know, I mentioned the beginning of this about the slow burn nature of the movie. And just in a microcosm, that scene sort of played out the same way. It's like a little bit of information, a little bit of information. It's like, wait, am I, is that? And then by the time they get to the cemetery, it's like, oh. And it's, has a greater impact. And, you know, Gavin and I went back and forth on it because when something's scripted, um, you know, you, you have to see it that way to see that it either works or it doesn't, but it was an early consideration. And so uh, we watched the whole movie with it the way it was scripted. And we came to the conclusion pretty quickly uh, that this other way would be more interesting. You said that you, you talked about this during shooting, that, that it might change, right or no? Yes, we did. Yeah, we, this was a discussion that we had during shooting. Did it actually change any of the shooting or? It didn't. I just wanted to bring up the idea to just in case it did. And it, it also affected, there was another sequence that would be going away 
which did go away. There was a scene of he and Angela driving from the cemetery to the birthday party where they discuss about, you know, they talk about Michael and it involves some visual effects. So it was one of those things where, hey, can we table these visual effects? Uh, Because it was somewhat involved in somewhat expensive uh, effect work. So it was more about that. So hey, can we just table, should we table this because I've got this idea? And we talked about it and and he was game for it. And did you discover that because while you were cutting, you were also putting scenes together, one scene to another during uh, during production? Or did you do something you just yes. felt? Yeah. It was both. Uh, so my process when I'm working and uh, is that I, I watch the dailies, I read the script a lot, uh, I put up stuff on the whiteboard. My assistant, uh, who is my son and has been my assistant for five years, um, we sit and we... We don't watch dailies together, and sometimes we do. If we're on location, we will. But um, we do talk every day about what's going on, what's what's going on in the cut. And it's great to have that kind of dialogue with somebody who, um, frankly, thinks a lot like me, but has his own brain uh, and his own approach to stuff. And you just sort of bat it around like a couple of guys sitting around. Because what we do, you know, listen, I would never say that what we do is writing. It isn't. It's a, it's a basically it's, it's a rewrite uh, of sorts, but it's the same process. You know, you're thinking about themes, you're thinking about uh, flow, you're thinking about ideas, and this was an area where you know we we put it up on the board. We thought, and we looked at it because we went straight to this. You know, you go from this huge montage to Jack picking up Angela at the beach, straight to the cemetery. Okay, I get it. It's a it's a bit of a Sunday punch to the audience. And we'd sort of talk about, hey, does this work? Is there a better way to do it? And we would just sort of talk it through. And it is, we do this all the time. We've done this on every movie that we've, we've worked on. And it is a great, great opportunity to, A, to, to be a better editor, to, to mentor a younger editor. And it's just more fun. What we do now is so isolating. We all want to be alone with our computer cutting the movie because it's hard to, you know, I, I was never a very good mentor. I shouldn't say not a very good mentor, but once we got to digital, it was, you know, it's just, you don't like anybody looking over your shoulder. I hate somebody looking over my shoulder if I'm, you know, looking at my phone, let alone watching a movie or cutting a movie. Uh, and it's hard to describe, well, you know, I'm going to do the Apple shift key here. This is what I'm going to do. And it's like, that's not really what editing is. Uh, editing is telling a story. When we used to work on film, I was a much better collaborator back then because you had to i had my assistant with me all the time helping me you know bringing trims and so there was just a there was a lot of thinking out loud why do you need this what are we doing with that and it was great for that because there was downtime because you're rewinding something or you're looking for something and you you know but you never got i didn't start talking about politics during that time we're waiting we're talking about the movie uh that seems to have gotten lost in in you know sitting in front of a computer I, I don't want to go back to the old days. That's not it. I, I, it was fun, and I'm glad I was able to do it. But uh, but I'm really fortunate to have stumbled upon how I can better mentor uh, my assistants and basically just have a much better time. And, and you know, I love hanging out with my son, so it makes it even better. So when was the last time you cut on film? Was it back since, like, um, NYPD Blue or no 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 NYPD Blue uh, that was uh, that was on avid the reason I took was it really oh yeah yeah 
Oh yeah, I would think. You, I was. I guess I was thinking it was later, earlier than that in the '80s, maybe, but it's the '90s. Maybe Hill Street Blues is what you were thinking about. Oh, Hill Street Blues is what I'm thinking yeah. about. Hill Street. Yeah, Blues. Hill Street Blues is what I did for. That was my first job, and that I did for three years. Yes, that was all on film, movie. All uh, once in a while, if we were lucky, we got to use a flatbed for you know viewing purposes. But again, that was dailies. Everybody in the room, you know, in the screening room every day watching the film. That was my first job as an editor and it was great training all the movies i did uh the first 10 movies i think i did were with people associated with that series in one form or another uh and it was great great training ground and um, a lot of fun uh but no i did my last movie on film was the peacemaker which we did in 1996 in bratislava i had already cut a movie or two uh, digitally but the choice to use film was because we were going to Eastern Europe, we were concerned about the infrastructure there, whether or not we would be able to get everything done as you know easily as, as we can do now. We certainly couldn't have imagined what it would, was like back then. But uh, so we did it on film. And it was also, it was the first movie for DreamWorks. Uh, Steven Spielberg, always a proponent of doing things in that way. He actually suggested it. I'd known Mimi for years and years and years. Uh, Mimi Leader, the director, and it was her first movie, a contact that I made on Hill Street Blues. She was a script supervisor on Hill Street. And so I'd known her for a long time. And so it was easy to say yes to that. And that was that was fun. But I haven't done it since. I'm really interested in perspective. And I thought there was a place where you were definitely making choices based on perspective, as you probably always do anyway. But um, in the hospital scene, when he goes to visit the sick boy, the choices were to stay in in his perspective, it, right? And that's what motivated your choice of who you're going to be on, what you're going to be looking at. Yes. And that was all, you know, again, Gavin's, Gavin's a really smart and, and able filmmaker. So it wasn't anything I came up with. I mean, it was just, it was most of these things, you know, they're dictated by the film that you get. He's smart enough to know that you can't just have one idea and simply commit to that to the exclusion of all else. But that's his primary idea, and he shoots for that. Then he always, but he covers very responsibly. He's, you know, he's been doing this a while. Some guys don't do that. Some guys have an idea, and they just say, look, this is my idea. And they don't understand that you can have that idea, you can have that vision, but it's not in disservice to that vision to cover yourself for other options later down the road. Uh, but Gavin's not that way. Gavin knows. He knows what he wants to do but he's smart enough to know that that might change. That scene, we did some additional uh, shooting. That was one, the hospital scene was one of the additional scenes. So we were um, much more clear about uh, visual intent and, and what the style of the movie was. So he was able to shoot it with much more precision, I believe. But yes, it was about point of view to the point where, you know, we, we talked a lot about how much does he hear the, the mom cry, that was a good one. That was a good scene. In the dailies, did you have any footage? Did the camera ever go into the room with the parents and the child? Never. We never saw the child. Did the camera ever go in never to went, the room? You know, no, it never went inside yeah. the glass. It never went inside the glass. It, it was uh, There was a long lens shot, which is in the movie, but it's just about Miguel and Jack making eye contact. Uh, and this was a really great ad. I mean, it's another thing where, you know, we had the support of the studio in this movie all the way along. And when you can go back and um, and you know drop in ideas and they give you the uh, the money to go out and shoot these scenes that are necessary that just weren't 
uh, effective in their initial uh, conception. The, the child that died in the initial uh, script was a different kid. Um, it was just somebody that they were referencing so that, again, going back to the birthday party when Jack and Miguel are having a walk and talk and talking about sick kids, and they mentioned, hey, have you talked to Ethan? You know, his kid's back in hospice. That was the child who died. And what causes Jack to fall off the wagon in the movie as we saw it is the death of this kid who we just saw at the birthday party. Previously, it was the death of another kid, and he'd gone to the funeral of this kid where he saw Miguel and, and, and all. But we didn't know that kid. We hadn't seen that kid. We had heard about him. Uh, and it was a very effective scene. Uh, he's sitting there at a funeral, and we can only imagine what it was like for him when his own child had died. But in rethinking it, we just got closer to it by showing the moment what, what Jack was reflecting on was the moment when he found out that his son was going to die, which we found out to be much more potent to uh, drive him back to drink than just seeing after the fact. No less emotional. The, the funeral scene was very emotional, but this seemed to be more immediate. And it also helped because we had this relationship with Miguel, the other father. So that one close-up, which was not inside the room, but it was on a long lens, it was just to make that eye contact between Jack and Miguel and Jack seeing himself and remembering that moment when the doctor said, your son's going to die. Uh, yeah, I've been a strong advocate to companies, directors, producers that I've worked with, save some budget for reshoots. <laughs> you yeah. know? Uh, is that something that uh, the two of you talked about in the edit that that needed to be done or something, Gavin, like, hey, this is going to happen or... No, I don't think, I'm trying to remember, Steve, I, I don't, Gavin has a really good relationship with the guys over at Warner Brothers. Certainly they watched dailies and they knew what was going on. And we had our screenings and we had our test screenings. Uh, I don't believe that we knew from the outset that we were going to go back and shoot some stuff. In fact, I'm pretty sure we didn't know because Ben shaved his beard and, you know, lost like 40 pounds. So we had to, um, he, he didn't gain all that weight, but he did uh, put the beard back on. Um, but we knew like we had about a six week lead time before we were going to go and shoot it. Uh, and so we knew that we had a few areas that we could improve. And uh, the studio was all for it because they wanted to make the best movie possible. So I'm with you. I think every, you know, uh, there's a number of filmmakers who claim to put that in their budget. We're going to go back and we're going to shoot something because you just don't know. Uh, in this case, it was it really worked out well. We had a lot of meetings about it. It was very surgical. We knew exactly uh, which scenes we needed to get. We didn't reshoot anything per se. We uh, did additional shooting. Just did additional photography. Yeah, there was one scene where we picked up a little more coverage in the bat in, in in one of the on the basketball court. Did a couple of things because we were there. Uh, I've had to edit a couple of movies with football action, uh, basketball action, various sports action. Can you talk about? The difficulties or any little tips or tricks that you found about uh, cutting, because there was a lot of basketball and I really loved the way it was cut. Um, just whether that's continuity or making it interesting or turning it into a story. I, I think it's always trying to find the story in it. I mean, if, if you just do, um, if it's kind of random and there's no spine to it, you know, it, it could be exciting, but it doesn't. I don't think it has the emotional impact. I can just tell you that it never, ever comes out as written, anything sports-related. And so if you try and shoot it, and if you imagine that it's going to come out the way it is on the page, 
And so you shoot it the way it is on the page and then you cut it the way it is on the page. It's just, you know, it's, it's not, it, it, it's not very good. It's, you know, and so, and I don't think anybody had any illusions about that. Um, I, I, Gavin again was smart. He's done sports movies. So he knew I'd done a bunch of sports movies. So we had a lot, you know, to compare notes and talk about, Hey, how are we going to do this? When I did blue chips, Friedkin just sh- the last game, he just shot, he just had these 10 guys go out there and play basketball for 20 minutes and cover it as though it were a television uh, being broadcast on television. Uh, and we cut and tried to find the moments. That's one way to do it. Uh, the other way to do it is to have all these scripted plays and to shoot the plays. But you always have to have kind of um, some random action. Just try and pick it up. Because if you just string the plays together, there's it, obviously you've got the sidelines. And, and fortunately, look, what, what makes this movie go is, is the character of Jack. And so we always had Jack on the sideline and Jack's story on the sideline was the spine to everything. I mean, it was, so that made it, in a way it made it easier. The work, we still put in the work, but knowing what our story was and what our focus was, that it was always playing off of Jack, it it made it easier to know when we were going down the wrong rabbit hole and when we were heading down the right path. But we did really work that the film we took games there were you know games that were part of the big montage one of the big montages where we were going across all of the we came up with the freeze frame ideas and the scores that was all kind of you know thought of on the fly the uh one of the games was just kind of mushed into that montage where it was a standalone game and it had its own sort of reason to be we kind of stripped that down and incorporated it into the into the montage uh, we changed colors of jerseys. We used we we reused footage. We did we we used different angles, but for the same plays. But changed the color of the jerseys so that we could suggest that we were playing ten or twelve different teams when in fact we only played three. Uh, but so that was kind of a nifty uh, you know thing to come up with. Um, but no, I, I I wish there was some you know like wholesale uh, comment you know. This is how you do a sports movie, or this is how you do a sports montage. But there isn't. They're all different. They all have their own, you know, they all have their own life. Yeah, I think the the idea that the, the action scenes themselves have a story to them is a big tip. That's a critical thing, that you've got to have that, have a beginning, middle, and end, just like you have a scene of a beginning, middle, Yeah, and it's end. really important, and if it doesn't exist... Try and figure a way to make it exist. You know, try and come up with something. You know, however, you uh, just even in your own head that you're telling a story it will affect the way you cut things. If you yourself are just thinking, "Well, this is the story I'm trying to tell," whatever that story might be, um, whether it's on the page or not, if you just if there isn't something there that's guiding you, find some something in there that's a story to you, and then you can present it to the director and say, "Well, this is what I was, this is what I was thinking as I did this," because. They never expect you – know, a montage is probably – a director, when they see a montage for the first time, it's going to be as far from what they'd imagined as any other scene that they might see, just the nature of montage. So if you can give them a, a reason why you did what you did, uh, then it's a point of, of, of discussion, and you can talk about that. And they can say, you're completely wrong. You have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> That's great advice about, and that's interesting about the montage. I'd never really thought about that, how different those probably feel to a director. 
It must be a nightmare for them. We've all worked with directors and, and had a, a multitude of experiences. Those that throw up right after the screening, uh, <laughs> and they always tell you, it's not you, it's me. It's, but you know, you're, you're sitting there thinking, it's not him, it's me. And, and then there's the other ones who go, wow, that was great. Um, let's watch it again. You know, it's, it's, it varies, but yes, those montages must be, and you know, the other thing is choice of music too. That's one thing that's huge in this, you know, in, in our generation of editors, because going back again, when we were cutting on film and you didn't put in temp music, uh, certainly not in the TV shows you know, that watching. we started. If you don't have a discussion with your director about the kind of music that you're going to put in, in fact, the exact whatever scores from whatever movies that you're going to put in there. If you don't have that conversation, you imagine the director that sits down and you haven't really watched anything with them and they sit down and they watch their movie and the entire thing is scored with, you know, Shawshank Redemption. Great score, fantastic. But it was a comedy and you've just inserted the, like the most dramatic score of all time. You are literally casting a character for them without even having had the discussion. Uh, it's a very you know, scary things. So it's, uh, you, you have to have a conversation about that with your director. And again, with this movie, what made it all the more, um, pleasurable along the way was that that person, that composer had already been brought on, that was already writing the music. Gavin had heard the music. He heard all the music before he ever saw it against film, uh, including in the first guy. Rob would send to me, would send to Gavin, Gavin and I would talk about it. So that was a, that was beneficial, to say the least. So that, that didn't sting as much. But man, can you imagine, you know, somebody's taking your, it's like, you know, your kid goes to school, they come home in like completely different clothes. Wait, who, who picked that out? <laughs> yeah, or a tattoo or a different hair color, you know, yeah. for a younger editor. When the director's watching that, you're all kind of nervous. You know, we're all nervous when the director's watching it. But the, the director themselves is much more concerned with their own stuff than yours. They're not, they're thinking about the way they shot it and more than your edit. Yes, that's something to keep in mind. It's very hard to not take it personally. You, yeah, you have to empathize with them. They're seeing something particularly if they haven't been watching scenes along the way. Uh, they're seeing this whole thing writ large on a screen for two and a half hours, or however long it is. And it's like, what must be going through their heads? I mean, I've had experiences with, 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 um, I, I, it might've been with Gavin too. I'm trying to think if it was, but when they've come out, maybe it wasn't Gavin, it was somebody else. I can't um, remember exactly who, but when they wanted afterwards, we're, we're talking about, it, he goes, honestly, after like the first five minutes, I, I completely checked out <laughs> because exactly. you know, they were so, and, and you, you know, we, we, we tend to work a lot with, with first time directors because there are more first time directors than, than anything. Uh, and so not only are they seeing their movie for the first time, they're for the first time they're seeing their movie for the first time and they have no idea. They, they can't possibly be prepared for that. And so they, they walk away and it's just, it kind of, they get hit by it, you know, with a two by four and they never recover until the next day. And then you can sit down and you watch it again and it's, and you start talking through it, but man, what a, what a shock that must be. So you can't take it personally. Do you ever not show an entire assembly? Do you just say, Hey, look, there's no point in watching two hours of or three or four hours of this. Let's just watch a reel. Um, 
I don't I don't think so. I, I don't I don't I don't yeah. think I've ever done that. There are editor there are other editor directors who just say I I'm, I know I'm never going to survive 3 hours of this. Let's just, you know. Yeah. Once I've checked out, yeah. let's let's stop and go back to the beginning. Yeah, I guess maybe it is a little um uh, torturous. It is, yes, uh, <laughs> I, you know, a little we like to inflict sadistic. So, hey, look, you shot it, you watch it, you know. <laughs> I think with one of the movies with Mimi uh, I think she said, "Let's just let's just take a break, <laughs> and you know, we wait a couple hours and we come back and finish it because it's you know it's it's hard." But you did a bunch of movies with her, so that could have been a, a point where she knew, "Hey, look, in our relationship, here's what." That's I'm right. Doing. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure on which movie that was, but um, we had a good time. We never, you know, once you get comfortable with the director, and you come back. I, I did. I've done multiple movies with 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 a number of directors, and you know, you get to a point where that goes away you never feel responsible for the pain that they've inflicted upon themselves. Uh, and they don't feel so much embarrassed by having to sit there and watch it with somebody who's, you know, who's sort of seen behind the curtain uh, and, and, and is judging them. Hopefully they never feel, no director ever feels that way, hopefully. But with people that you've, you know, you've done a couple of movies with, it helps because you, you get past that in a, you know, much more quickly in a matter of hours instead of a matter of days or weeks. And you can just get down to the business of, you know, of making the movie better, as good as it can be. Amen. Thank you so much for your time. It was a really enjoyable discussion. Great. great. Thanks, Steve. Really loved it. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, David Rosenblum, ACE. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to check out the previous episodes and make sure to tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend. And if you like this podcast, help us by sharing the love. Leave a review of Art of the Cut on your favorite podcasting platform or get involved in the conversation. Ask questions, leave comments. We read them all. Thanks.